Tēnā koutou, no mai, hai to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. This morning, MMP was supposed to broaden the representation within Parliament, but six weeks from the election, two government support partners face the real prospect of missing out on another term. Winston Peters is with us live. And deja vu for the Greens. Will supporters stick with them after James Shaw's funding blunder? There's nothing wrong with um, a Minister for Climate Change throwing his weight around if that weight was being thrown around to achieve climate change goals. I mean, I, I think that's what he should be doing. Then later, the role of the first bloke in a world of women leaders. The Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda. It just shows you the extent to which strategists are thinking, OK, we need to involve the, the partners of a politician. And that raises all sorts of, of ethical and democratic issues. The Ministry of Health is this morning to, uh, continuing to investigate a possible case of COVID-19 in the South Island. When it comes to the political response to the pandemic, um, New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters is already looking to differentiate his party by claiming the government of which he was a part made significant mistakes in responding to the coronavirus crisis. Mr Peters is campaigning in Canterbury and joins us from Christchurch this morning. Kia ora, welcome to Q&A. Good morning. Do you support staying at the current alert levels until September 16th? Well, the reality is that that's the cabinet decision and it's a majority decision and we have to live by it. And so it's not a matter whether I support it or not. It's uh, important that we, uh, we go forward uh, with a uh, team effort. Let's look back then. You say five months ago uh, Labor ministers made errors in not bringing in the army and that there uh, were errors in the overall New Zealand response to COVID-19. Why didn't you speak up at the time? Well, the reality is that we've all got portfolio responsibilities and if it was foreign affairs or a whole lot of range of things like that, then I'd be responsible. The ministers in this case are Labor ministers and that happens to be the circumstance and even a replacement minister, in the case of Clark, uh, onto uh, Hipkins has been within the Labour Party. All I'm pointing out is some facts, and it's not d deniable, it's not disputable, and all I'm saying is that systems matter, and rather than uh, try and make out that everything's perfect, if we're to go forward and be do better mm. and not let our guard down, then we should own up to the fact that some, in some areas we didn't do as well as we could. That's all I'm saying. And mm. with its sport, with its business, whatever, whatever your enterprise is, and the same in politics, systems and surveillance and counter-checking to ensure that things are done does do matter. That's the point I'm making. But Mr Peters, you're on the COVID committee. If, you're so, if you were so sure of yourself at the time, why not speak out publicly? Well, it hardly helps that far out from an election uh, to be speaking out publicly in some sort of dispute in a coalition. The reality was we went all the way to the 6th of uh, August where we'd passed 190 pieces of legislation to demonstrate that we could cooperate. When the House rose, we went into a election, an election period, and that's why I can speak but freely now. Surely you don't want me to keep this isn't all of some us folly, quiet though, is it? All no, the way to election day. No, but this isn't some this isn't some you know, relatively minor tax policy or or some folly, you know, funding for a private school, something like that. I mean, there were potentially thousands of lives at stake here. If you were so sure of your position, why not speak up? I did. I spoke up. Five months later. No, I spoke up inside the meeting where it did but, matter, and that's in a cabinet circumstance. But I mean, but there were it, lives, no, no, can, can there I were lives on the line can here. Can I just finish? Can I just finish? What I said then turned out to be what was necessary. I'm just making the point. 
that if you've got experience, you should use it in mm. politics. I said before we went into the lockdown that we needed the military, and I said we needed masks, and I said we needed far greater checks as to what was going on at the quarantine areas. Now, it's not a case of saying, and there's nothing so sterile as the quote I, that I told you so, but my point was, when we were winning so well in those 100 mm. days, and like so many ventures in life, when you're winning, that's when you've got to be ultra careful. And I believe, to be honest with the people of this country, and regrettably, we let our guard down. I'm asking why you didn't speak up at the time. It's, it's all did. well and good. It's all well and good you know, to look back at things in, in retrospect, James, isn't it? James, James, don't try and, don't My try name and is be. Don't try and be a Philadelphia lawyer with me. I've been around a long time. I spoke up where it matters, and I explained to you that when the government rose from the House, I was free then to say what the history of this matter was. Was any New Zealand First MP, staffer or associate responsible for leaking any information with regards to the Green School funding? Beg your pardon? Was any New Zealand First MP, staffer or associate responsible for leaking any information well, regarding James, the wanted, Green wanted, School funding? If you wanted to know the answer to that question, why didn't you guys tell me last night or this morning? And I could find out, but why, do you, why are you asking me now? To the best of your knowledge, was any New Zealand, uh, New Zealand First MP, staffer or associate responsible for leaking If you wanted to know the answer to that question, again, without being cute, why didn't you ask me last night or this morning? I'm not being and cute, I could, Mr Peters. And I could, I could have got, it, got here totally brief, but I was told okay. I was going to be... No, I was, I was told I was going to be talking about the cattle loss and the loss of lives in the Gulf. To the best of your knowledge, to the best of your knowledge, Mr Peters, to the best of your knowledge, Mr Peters, was any New Zealand please? First MP, staffer or associate responsible James, for leaking look, James, information? James, you won't overtalk me. Can I finish? I was told the matters that I was to come here and be briefed on, and I did my best this morning getting up early to be briefed on them. Well, we'll get that to those, was, we'll get to those that matters, was not Mr Peters. Them, so if you want that answer... I'll go out and find out for you, but I can't tell you now. OK, to the best of your knowledge, has any New Zealand First MP, staff or associate leaked information regarding the Green School funding? James, you're not a lawyer. You're no good in a court of law in terms of cross-examination. Well, you, you are not stop an answerer, as, as it silly, is at the moment. Stop playing silly games. I'm telling you, if you want it's to very know simple that, question, Mr Peters. Mis yeah, very, very simple, simple question, question, and, and I've asked you multiple times. To James, the best of I'm your knowledge, you, you haven't answered answer, it. OK, I'm, I'm, let me ask another I question. I regret coming here this morning to stop off my campaign, to come along to see some junior thinks he's going to play Billy the Kid. OK, please, would you... Please realise these are serious matters and they deserve a serious approach. I, I totally agree. beforehand, I'd have come here briefed on Mr. it. Mr Peters, I totally agree that, that, uh, that, that these are serious matters, this is a serious election and that integrity is uh, central to this election campaign. Uh, while we're on the subject of funding, and I will get to those other matters, um, since we last spoke, <laughs> it has been revealed that your office... Uh, specifically requested Antarctica New Zealand to take two of your personal friends on a taxpayer-funded trip to Antarctica. Why did your office do uh, that? Don't, don't be so cheap about that. I've answered all those questions um, and probably about 50 or 60 questions so, on the so National why, Party so on why, that. So why then? Can I, can I just say I answered all those questions and been very, very clear. The National Party took countless people down like that. We took business people down like that. John Key started the trend in the hope that one day soon in the future, when we do need business funding, then we can go to the public of this country. We've taken down you and your colleagues, countless journalists, all on the same boat, but all of a sudden, because I have asked two people, when two seats came up and there was spare and going unused... Well, there was actually only one seat, according to no, Antarctica New seat. Zealand. 
Okay, with so, so, so what, but what was the purpose, that, what, what was the, what no, was no, the purpose of sending I, your can friends? I just, can we just agree that you don't know what you're talking about? There were always, there's always one spare seat on that plane on every flight. It's an emergency measure we've always so had. So why did and you send your friends, Mr Peters? Why did your friends deserve to go? Well, you can no, answer can my I, question. I'll, no, I'll, if you, you answer my question, I'll, I'll allow you to finish. But, but no, you Jamie, ask... you know, you're, you're not going to be running this programme. I am. I'm the person being interviewed here, and you've Actually, had the Mr. Peters, I hate to break not this to, to you. give me an honest briefing whatsoever. <laughs> okay. No honest briefing. No tell me did, what did the truth your, of the Did your is. friends explicitly promise money to Scott Base in exchange for visiting well, the look, ICE don't, don't be on so a taxpayer-funded trip? Don't be so cheap and churlish any more than the people the National Party took down. Mr. Peters, as this well. is a simple question of integrity. There will be people watching this who are asking it's not why a, it's you. Not a, as a it's minister, a... have used your position to allow for your personal friends to take a taxpayer-funded trip to Antarctica. Look, don't, don't use the power of the state, paid for by the taxpayer, to try and take a political party apart and its leader with a bit of old-fashioned dirt. If you wanted the information for that, then I could have brought you all of the answers I've given to Jerry Brownlee and everybody else has asked it over the last two months. But no, you thought you'd come along and hijack me. No. Well, I've got news for you and it's all bad. Mr Peters, why was more than $10.5 million from the Provincial Growth Fund used to fund a synthetic horse racing track in Christchurch? Well, you're wrong about that. It's more than that, uh, because there's three tracks. There's one in the middle of the North Island. But it's $10.5 million has been specifically allocated to the synthetic but I'll, but track I'll in Christchurch. I'll get to it, and please don't interrupt me, with the greatest respect. I can give you the full answer. There are three synthetic tracks. We are losing countless days because of bad weather. And the track is in Christchurch because though it is in Christchurch, and you're going to argue that it's not part of the provinces of this country, every trainer is from the provinces. That's the difference. In Christchurch. Since 2017, how much money has your party in the New Zealand First Foundation received from the horse racing industry? Oh, look, I'm not going to come on and have a Star Chamber of Debate with you, James. Uh, because this is a duel of wits with an unarmed opponent, and I'm not that sort of guy. Again, we are six weeks from an election. I'm not having Mr. a duel of wits with an unarmed opponent, James. Integrity is much. a central issue for voters in this election. There will I be voters a, who know that the New Zealand First Foundation has taken tens of thousands of dollars in donations and has given $10.5 million from the Provincial Growth Fund to fund a synthetic horse racing track in Christchurch. And you can keep on talking as long as you like, James, but I think it's a disgrace that a taxpayer-owned operation called TVNZ is behaving this way, this close to the election. Well, I'm glad that it's we are both so concerned dirt. with taxpayer funding, Mr Peters. Well, Can you're you... not, but I am. Mr Peters, have you been interviewed by the Serious Fraud Office with regards to your investigation into the New Zealand First Foundation? Ah, oh, here we go again, you see. This is just pure dirt. Go and get your answer have somewhere you, else. Have you, been, have you been interviewed, Mr Peters? Go and get your answer somewhere else. This is just pure, unadulterated dirt. Mr. Peters, you should be a ashamed simple, of yourself. It's a simple so question. Should your producer and the people that run TVNZ? Mr. Peters, it I is can a see why you question. guys are in trouble. Mr. Peters, it is a simple question. Have you been interviewed by the Serious Fraud Office with regards and I'm not to the investigation going to waste my time. Let me say, let me, let me tell you, I'm not going to waste my time this close to an election, giving you a chance to spray dirt around on behalf of your political. Well, you'll masters. be able to clear it up. First You've thing. just failed. Has your partner, Jan Trotman, You've been interviewed by, by the Serious Fraud Office failed, James. regarding the waste my time New Zealand First Foundation? this sort of dirt. And it, you, look, why don't you... This is, you're, this is a disgrace. Why didn't you tell me this yesterday that you wanted me to come Mr. on Peters, and talk about these this are simple matter? questions. We're six weeks from an election. We I told you we wanted to ask you about question, your election campaign. why weren't you decent enough and honest enough to say why you really want me on the show? 
Mr Peters, we want you on the show to answer questions about integrity. We are six well, weeks from an election. And Why did you lie about the, it then? I haven't lied about it one, yes, in one, one way, Mr You Peters. and your producer flat out lied about what the show was about. Mr Peters, do you expect the results of the Serious Fraud Officers investigation into the New Zealand First Foundation to be released before the election? Well, now, see, that's a kind of simpleton question, which if, any, if you're speaking to any lawyer, they'd laugh at you. How can they possibly do that? You know, they, if, you, if, you, if you're that badly briefed, how can they possibly do that? Well, the, New Zealand, uh, the Serious Fraud Office indicated initially that the uh, results of, the, of their investigation would be released before the election. Is no, that not the case? Say, no, they, they didn't say that at all. But did they say that about the Labor Party in Christchurch, the Labor Party in Auckland, or the Labor Party nationwide? Well, given it did involves your, the, your party's no, foundation, Mr Peters... Stop there. Did they say question. about the National Party? So there's four inquiries, but you're on this programme... And you won't be asking anybody else. Well, Mr. Peters, you aren't the leader of the National Party or the Labour Party. Scott Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister, I have some questions for you in your capacity as Foreign Minister, has indicated uh, that the Australia may open to interstate travel before Christmas. Uh, have you had any updates with regards a Trans-Tasman bubble or air bridge? Well, it's better we didn't get to this programme and this part of the programme a long time ago and not put up with your idea of some sort of star chamber affair, which is a disgrace, I might say, to modern journalism this close to an election. But when it comes to what Scott Morrison is saying, you've got to read between the lines. If you had any experience, you'd understand that he's got a problem with the federal system in Australia, and you've got interstate, state-by-state mm. bans against other states coming to their country, uh, to, to, to their state. And I think, reading between the lines, I think Scott Morrison thinks, if we can get New Zealand travelling to some Australian states... They'll set an example, they'll lead the way, and maybe the states will not be, in terms of interstate travel, mm. so hard on each other. That's what I put that down to. And is there any update as Foreign Minister on the New Zealanders who are reported missing from the cattle, uh, from the live cattle export ship off the coast of Japan? Well, this is something I was briefed on, and yes, I can tell you that there is a, a circumstance where the typhoon is as bad now as it was at then. Uh, we've got 43 people were on that uh, boat as, as crew, or working staff or, or associated with it. Uh, of that, um, three people have been rescued. One has died, mm. and there have been two survivors. And in the meantime, things have been suspended because of the, uh, the weather, which is so bad at the moment. At the moment. It's a rather tragic uh, an event. All right. Thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. New Zealand First Leader, Winston Peters. Good Lord. We will hear from former Green co-leader Russell Norman after the break, plus our political panel this morning. Then our elimination strategy has been widely praised around the world. So why do some academics still believe it's time to open up and learn to live with COVID-19? And a little later, a landmark decision in the Peter Ellis case this week, why it could have far-reaching consequences. Welcome back to q and I'm James Tame. The Green Party once again finds itself trying to undo the damage from a political own goal just before an election. We invited co-leaders James Shaw and Marama Davidson on the programme this morning, as well as the party's co-conveners. They all declined to appear. But after James Shaw was lambasted for his decision to give millions of dollars funding to a so-called Green private school, for some within the Greens, there is a sense of deja vu. Six weeks from the election, this is not the message any party leader wants to be pushing in prime time. 
The decision that I made to support this project was an error of judgment for which I apologise. If I was making the same decision again, I would not support the project. The Green School saga has coincided with a lag in the political cycle, with Parliament limping on before the start of the official campaign period. It's very clear, there's no denying that already we were hovering around 5%. Um, we have to work very, very hard. Uh, that's why we are here apologising. And as the Greens' leadership navigates massive criticism from within their own party membership, comparisons with the 2017 election are perhaps inevitable. The right thing to do for my family and for the party was to step aside. The Matidia two-day controversy was very different. The former co-leader stood by her decision to publicly admit having previously lied to receive higher welfare payments. But divisions within the party were laid bare when two sitting Green MPs opposed to her stand announced they would stand down as candidates before the election. New Zealanders have voted for change. After Tuday resigned, the party won 6% of the party vote, enough support to re-enter Parliament, but a poor showing compared to 2011 and 2014 when Labour struggled and the Greens recorded double-digit results. Polls this time around show a hugely popular Labour Prime Minister, but even before the Green School saga, the Green Party was flirting with 5%. So just how much has the last fortnight harmed the Greens' chances? And what environmental and climate achievements will the party point to as they reset their campaign? I met with Greenpeace New Zealand Executive Director and former Greens co-leader Russell Norman and asked him what he makes of the Green School saga. Look, there's nothing wrong with um, a Minister for Climate Change throwing his weight around if that weight was being thrown around to achieve climate change goals. I mean, I, I think that's what he should be doing. Um, so, you know, it was obviously disappointing that he was drawing a line in the sand about get, getting funding for that project, um, the school project, um, but he wasn't drawing a line in the sand to make sure we cut the emissions out of the agricultural sector, which is more than half of our total climate pollution. Uh, so, yeah, it was very um, disappointing, really. Is discipline an issue for the Greens? Well, I mean, I think if you look at the caucus, um, the caucus was uh, actually, um, so far as I can tell, pretty disciplined. I didn't see any of them speaking out. Is it difficult for a party where a lot of the members perhaps have activist backgrounds to try and maintain a cohesive front? Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of activists, obviously, within the party who are outspoken on social media platforms. Um, but it's also true that... Um, you know, there's people that speak out in other parties as well. I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe there's more. Um, but it's a, you know, I think it's basically a good thing. I mean, you know, I think it's, you know, we want to live in a democracy where people feel like they can speak out and have their say, so... Doesn't, just it goes doesn't harm it. the party as a whole? Well, I mean, if you think about it in this particular case, I think some of the speaking out by the activists probably um, actually helped the party leadership see the error of its ways and realise it needed to change tack. If you look back over the last three years and, and the role that the Green Party has had in government, how do you assess the Greens' achievements? If you were to give an assessment of the environmental performance of the government overall, of which the Greens have been part, um, the significant gains have been the, uh, the ban on new oil and gas exploration permits and the cap that was introduced on synthetic nitrogen fertiliser. They're very significant gains. 
The big areas where we really have been problematic um, have been firstly agriculture. Um, it's our biggest climate polluter and a big driver of biodiversity loss and there's not a single regulation or a single price signal aimed at reducing emissions out of agriculture, our biggest polluting sector. And then the other great failure really has been in the ocean space where the fishing industry have got away with business as usual and have managed to resist all efforts to control them. Do you worry for the Greens? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's um, a genuine risk around the 5% threshold um, at the moment. I mean, when you look at the polling, um, you know, both uh, the Greens and New Zealand First, I think, are facing that risk at the moment. Right, let's bring in our panel now. Lila Hurray, unionist and former MP, and Ben Thomas, PR consultant and former national staffer. Kia ora kōrua. Lila, I will begin with you. How has the Green School saga over the last couple of weeks affected the Greens' chances of getting to that 5% threshold? Well, first of all, you know, they're, they're hovering on the threshold um, and nothing good will come of this. However, my gut kind of feeling about it is that it is not hugely significant to their public support. Um, I think there are a couple of sort of problems. There's a substantive problem of the decision that was made and the indication that gives that James Shaw's environmental kind of focus mm. is disconnected from the social justice co-papa of the party and they need to almost have a checklist with these decisions like will this advance or reduce our progress on these core core green issues which include social justice um, I think the second problem is the way that some within the party chose to react um, in a very public way very quickly without engaging internally mm. um, and no one you know outside likes to see disunity um, thinks that's a positive thing um, and and I think that is you know will make things more difficult for them but overall I don't think this particular decision in the wider context um, will cost them votes. It's interesting isn't it because it sort of has coincided with this lull in the in the political news cycle and the, the parliament was sort of wrapping up obviously the election's been delayed so the timing wasn't ideal from the party's perspective but Ben are there really many voters who would have been planning to vote for the Greens who are now reconsidering that decision? They're at 5%, so they're very, very close to their floor in any case. And I think you're right, this was a story that was filling a vacuum in that there was no real impropriety. R remember, there were 2,000 projects that, were, that applied for this shovel-ready funding, uh, shortened down to a short list of 800, then down to 150 projects which actually got funding. Mm. Um, of course, there was going to be a bit of sort of per personal bias or things that somebody had read about before or they had met people who were involved in projects because you're just not able to do real due diligence mm. on those projects in the, the weeks, literally, that they had available for it. Uh, Shaw is a bit of a victim of the process 
for this shovel-ready funding, which was set up, which was uh, lauded as a way of modernising the economy, creating living standards-ready projects. But actually, the real goal was to get jobs and money out the door immediately. Mm. And so it was all going to councils and roads. And the fact that James Shaw's eyes are lighted on one line item saying green something or other, um, you know, shouldn't be a surprise. Yeah, it's interesting to note, you know, the, the divisions within the party. And, and sometimes I wonder if we all just need to take a step back and remember that Twitter isn't the real <laughs> world and that actually the green supporters are probably very vocal in some of those social media spaces. When really I would have thought having a Prime Minister like Jacinda Ardern, a resurgent Labour Party, is far more damaging to the Greens' prospects than any of these relative sideshows like um, I, I think the way a party behaves with itself and mm. within itself is important. And I agree that, you know, voice, some very a very tiny number of voices can be hugely amplified mm. because they are prepared to use those social media platforms. And while, you know, almost the entire New Zealand population is not reading Twitter, um, the media are, the kind of... The, the activists are, and it is a way to get your message mm. out more broadly. I think those people make a mistake um, by using that against their own party. I mean, if you look at how things ended up playing out, one of the things I think the Greens can really stand strong on is how unified their caucus mm. were in taking the, pro you know, hearing the problem doing their best to find a solution and showing unity around their leadership. So yeah. I don't think James has suffered with his caucus colleagues. I was, I was listening to Radio New Zealand's Guy Nespiner um, last night and thought he made an interesting point in comparing the Greens and how they have handled this situation with some of the other parties in Parliament. And, and he essentially pointed out what he perceives to be a double standard. The, the scrutiny that is applied over this decision for funding for a private school compared to the likes of New Zealand First securing more than $70 million to secure the racing industry, more than $10 million. Well, Winston Peters did not take the opportunity today to apologise profusely for no. the race Racecourse. No. Um, so, yeah, in a way, the Greens... Uh, strung up by what some people see as hypocrisy in this case, which again I think is an unfair charge. Mm. This project met all of the criteria mm. that was laid down. Now, the criteria didn't include do we think it's worthwhile planting crystals in the middle of the Taranaki, um, but you know, that, mm. that's a project design issue, not a James Shaw issue. What do you think this tells us about MMP? L looking at, at the state of the parties at the moment, New Zealand First and the Greens both flirting with that 5% threshold, we face a very real prospect of having just three parties in Parliament. Well, I think, you know, my big takeouts on how this all looks for MMP, one, our threshold is far too high. You know, a 5% threshold with this kind of backdoor method of getting more people into Parliament mm. by winning an electorate seat is distorting a kind of genuine um, following of of those parties that you actually support there are you know there are too many decisions that voters mm. have to make um, that go well beyond do i like the party the leadership do i trust them uh, their policy positions are they the ones i support and all these tactical questions mm. which really come down to an overly high threshold mm.
Uh, ben, we contacted the Serious Fraud Office uh, on Friday afternoon and asked them if they had any updates on their investigation into the New Zealand First Foundation. Their update was that they have no update. Do you think uh, voters deserve to see that, that um, the conclusion of that investigation released before the election? I think the voters do. I think that Winston Peters does. Uh, it is unfortunate to have it hanging over uh, his head uh, until the election camp, until the voting day. Um, and it really should be done by now. You know, there was a, mm. an undertaking that it would be released prior to the election. The, the original election would now only be two weeks away. Um, so I think there are a few questions for the serious fraud office here. What do you think, Lila? Uh, about the serious fraud office? Uh, about, about whether or not I don't it really... should be released yeah, well, before the election. I think people would like to know what the hell has gone on with the New Zealand First Foundation. And I think... Um, I mean, New Zealand First are now in such a marginal position that if there are people who are still willing to vote for them with that hanging out there, well, good on them. Um, my kind of concern with the New Zealand First sort of retreat into this entirely negative campaign now um, is the the sheer hypocrisy of it. I mean, look at the look at the issue of this. We should have brought in the military, and we're only responsible for those areas where we have portfolios. Well, actually, the Minister of Defence is Ron Marks, mm. a New Zealand First Member of Parliament. As far as I know, there has not been a single initiative. Um, presented, tabled, taken, advocated or planned um, by the military to, to sort of be a much bigger part of this response. Mm. So, frankly, I think um, we are hearing a lot of disingenuous, um, opportunistic, mm. riding on the, the tails of Nationals' negative campaigning um, behaviour now from Winston Peters. Right. I would actually disagree with that. I think that Winston Peters thinks he's spotted a gap with nationals kind of hugging the government a bit mm. closer well, on the COVID response now. And so they're, they're going into this third party space, but unfortunately it's pretty crowded ground. You've got ACT there, the new Conservatives, the nutters like Advance New Zealand. So it's a pretty crowded party to turn up late to. Mm. Alright, thanks for your time and insights as always. Lala Hari and Ben Thomas. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us Q&A at tvnz.co.nz up next, if an elimination strategy requires more lockdowns in the future, will we stick with it? Can we strike a better balance in the response to COVID-19? Hoki Mayanor, welcome back to Q&A. Despite the comparative success of New Zealand's elimination strategy, there continue to be calls for changes to our approach. A group of academics behind Plan B, as they call it, still think it's unlikely we can keep the virus out. They argue the economic damage from more lockdowns will cause long-term harm to public health, education and the economy. And they say there needs to be a continuing public conversation about our options. Because a vaccine may be years away if we get one at all. I'm joined now by epidemiologist Dr Simon Thornley. Kia ora, welcome to Q&A. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed following the coverage of uh, COVID. I think it's been great. Oh, thank you. And I'm glad we can speak with you this morning. We have a lot more data now than we did in the early stages of the response to COVID-19. Of course, New Zealand clocked more than 100 days without community transmission. Do you still think we need to learn to live with COVID-19? 
I want to take a moment to clarify the position of the Plan B group because it underpins everything I'm going to say. COVID-19 is a nasty flu-like virus. It's new, but it's not unique. The Ioannidis study shows the death rate is only very marginally worse than the standard flu viruses that kill hundreds of sick and elderly New Zealanders every year. The response should be a measured one like we've planned for lower mortality pandemics, not lockdowns. We've sacrificed our humanity, our society, and our economy for the wrong virus. The fear and panic that has driven the response of many scientists, politicians, policymakers, and the media, we believe, is unwarranted, and it's even irrational. Okay, I didn't know you were going to read that, but perhaps you can unpack some of those ideas a little more for us. What, in your eyes, would a more measured response look like? Well, when the government first came out and said we, the priority should be to uh, protect the hospitals and the intensive care units, I was all behind that, and I think that's where the priority should be. We've seen overseas that that's where the problems mm. have occurred with COVID-19. So we believe now that our current policy is many, many more times um, more uh, problematic than the actual virus itself. We believe that early on the virus looked very deadly. The infection fatality rates, the case fatality rates were very high, about mm. 3%, much greater than seasonal influenza. Now with serology data coming from many countries in the world, we're seeing those infection fatality rates dialed way back. So what would it look like? What would an alternative response look like? Well, we need to do uh, good infection control in hospitals and protect the elderly, arrest homes, and we need to do good social distancing yeah. uh, in terms of f uh, and, and following uh, the capacity in our school, uh, our hospitals and intensive care units. We know that our capacity, compared to other countries though, is very poor in those intensive care units and that we would be overwhelmed very quickly if there were to be a larger scale outbreak. We know now that New Zealand has a very good mm. ability to modify the capacity in its hospitals and intensive care units. But how much do we have to scale up? Well, we've, even at the height of this epidemic, there was, the ICUs were comparatively empty. Our hospitals were But that's were because the lockdown 50%. worked. That's because the lockdown worked though, isn't it? Well, the science now shows, if you compare countries that did lockdown with those that didn't, the countries that did lockdown didn't do especially better in terms of overall COVID I mean, cases and deaths. New Zealand's led the world. We had perhaps the toughest lockdown restrictions of any country and New Zealand has led the world. That's, what it, that's certainly what it looks like, but if you look at the scientific studies that have been done, there's one in the Lancet, mm. uh, there's been the Mernier study, which has looked at the within-country time trends. We've seen that the data, the science, simply doesn't support ongoing lockdowns to control but, the but, virus. But, but back to our success early on in this, in this response. I mean, clearly New Zealand had much tougher restrictions than, than many other countries. 
we've had lower rates of COVID-19 as a as a per capita um, as a per capita measure. We've had relatively low death rates compared to most countries on earth. Indeed, I mean Forbes magazine I think yesterday called us the second safest place to be in the world. We've seen economists such as Joseph Stiglitz saying New Zealand has been world class in its response. New Zealand's response was appropriate for mm. a more severe virus, one that we thought that we had when we had the early data, but we haven't adjusted for the science, which clearly now shows that this virus is not as serious as we first mm. thought. You said that yourself, Jack, back in March. You said we need to be fearful of the virus, but not too fearful because it's not that much worse than the flu. I didn't say that. I, I, I would certainly not have made any sort of comment like that comparing it with the flu because I don't personally know. I'm not an epidemiologist. I do appreciate the need for balance in a response though and I accept that there is a school of thought, there is an argument that by locking down we cause a degree of economic damage that in the long run will prove to be more damaging than short term lockdowns. I accept that that is the position of your group for example. What about our more vulnerable populations? You look at the, the report in the medical journal on Friday that indicates Māori are significantly more at risk of COVID-19 complications and death than non-Māori in New Zealand. As treaty partners, how should we handle that information? We obviously need to do the best we can do as a society to protect our vulnerable, and that includes Māori and Pacific New Zealanders. Mm. But we know overall that this virus is not the deadly virus that we feared now. We've seen the updated data. The Ioannidis paper clearly shows that the infection fatality from this virus is mm. about two in a thousand. We've had, two, you know, we've had two people die in the last 48 hours in New Zealand. Deaths in the United States are fast approaching 200,000. So clearly, in particular for people with pre-existing conditions or who are particularly vulnerable, this is a deadly virus, what would you do to protect the quarter of our population who are particularly at risk? Well, we need to use the principles of infection control and what we've used to control the yeah. infection uh, of other viruses with a similar mm. mortality rate. And that doesn't involve locking down the country, locking down vast swathes of our population who are at very low risk from the virus. I, I know a lot of comparisons have been drawn with Sweden, but knowing what we now know about this virus, is there a country or a place you think New Zealand should be emulating at this point in the response? Well, I think the long-term response is important here, a sustainable response that our country can uh, continue with mm. over a long period of time. Mm. And with this virus, elimination is just simply not warranted, given what we now understand from the science so, 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 and the infection fatality. So is there a better, is there another, is there a country you can use as an example for New Zealand? Well, I, I think Iceland is a particularly good example. So they've done widespread testing, but they are, they've readjusted mm. the risk of the virus. They're starting to open up their borders. Mm. They're allowing tourism. They're not locking down. Uh, so I think there's, if you look to Europe now, you see that many countries 
are adjusting their risk to the virus. Spain had 50,000 cases last week. Well, you look at the epidemic curves and you'll see that the death rates have come right down now. Mm. And if you look at the deaths overall, you'll see that the deaths in each country are in age groups that are about the same as what we expect mm. for natural mortality. Let, let me ask this. You know, observing this debate from the outside, it's looked nasty. A, a, a lot of this debate has, has verged on... Um, being quite a personal, being quite a personal debate, at least from the outside. Do you personally, you are you are an epidemiologist. Have you personally published work on communicable diseases? Yes, I certainly have. Uh, uh, and I, I mean, I, I've considered your I've considered your published works, and 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 a, a large proportion of those, at least, focus on things such as tobacco use and alcohol use and that sort of thing, as opposed to something that might be more directly relevant to a pandemic. I've been working in public health on the measles outbreak. I've been doing models of infectious diseases. So mm. uh, if I can't speak out on this issue, I'm not sure who can, Jack. Yeah. Do you feel like, it, do you feel like it's been personal? Uh, I think one thing that has shocked mm. me uh, about the debate is the lack of debate, that science we know is about diversity of opinion and I believe that the government has been captured by scientists who have extreme views. If you look around the world, mm. there are very few countries that are chasing an elimination strategy for this virus. But there are very few countries where that might be a possibility. Thank you very much for your time, Dr Simon Thornley. It is an important conversation. After the break, lawyers for the late Peter Ellis have been told they can continue an appeal against his convictions. Why, this is a groundbreaking case for New Zealand law. Kia ora te whanau. welcome back to Q&A. The Supreme Court ruled this week that Peter Ellis's appeal against his convictions for child sex offences will be allowed to continue, despite him having died more than a year ago. It will be the first time in New Zealand legal history a criminal conviction has been appealed by someone who has died. Central to the court's decision was the consideration of tikanga, or Māori customary law. So how far should the use of tikanga stretch within a New Zealand legal context? Joining us now from Whakatane, or Edgecombe, near Whakatane, is lawyer Natalie Coates, who acted as counsel for Peter Ellis in the Supreme Court hearing. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Morena Jack, how do you do? Very well, thank you. Can you just start off by telling us what, what is tikanga and how did you apply it to your argument? Sure. So uh, tikanga is Māori customary law. Uh, pe people like the likes of Ani Mikaere and just Justice Joe William have described it as the first law of Aotearoa New Zealand. Uh, it's comprised of not only practices and rules but also some fundamental principles that underlie it, such as mana, whakapapa, whanaungatanga, uh, etc. So in this particular case, uh, we, we drew on some of those big fundamental ideas such as mana uh, and also the idea of um, of air and hara to argue that this case should continue. Just how significant is this decision then? 
Well, the decision that the court made uh, on Wednesday was that the case should continue, but they reserved the decision or reserved the reasons for the decision. Mm. So we're not quite sure uh, whether they've accepted the arguments that we've made, but we're optimistic that they will form part of the substantive reasoning when that's finally released. Well, especially given the Supreme Court justices invited arguments on tikanga, how far do you think we should go in incorporating tikanga into New Zealand law? Well, it, it already is part of New Zealand law. Uh, it's part of the fabric and the matrix of law that makes up Aotearoa. There's well-established precedent to that effect already. And in the, in the, in the argument or, or the case we drew on precedent prior to 1840 that illustrated that. So it already forms part of that. Um, in, in this particular case, we were just applying it to a, a particular context. Mm. Um, so I guess what the, one of the things that I drew on was, was a particular whakatauki to help illustrate um, what I was arguing in, in the case, which, um, if I can just, just repeat it, it was, it was made by Putato uh, Te Whero Whero, um, when he became the first Māori king, and he, he talked about um, ko tahi te koha o te ngira e kuhuna ai te mero mā, te mero which is there's but one eye of the needle through which the white, the black and the red threads must pass. And I used that to try and create a picture, I guess, for, for the judges um, mm. of the, the fabric of law in Aotearoa and being able to draw on the different threads for the develop, in terms of the development of, mm. of, our, of our law of Aotearoa in New Zealand. It's so interesting. You know, when I think about, you know, t using, using arguments around mana in a, in a formal legal context, I'm drawn to something like our current laws for defamation, for example. And, and of course, we know at the moment that you can't defame the dead. Would you like to see, for example, some, some reconsideration of that position using mana as a, as a, um, as a central principle? Yeah, well, of course, any precedent that's set by this case will apply to the specific facts. But I think it does, if they accept some of our arguments about the relevance of tikanga in this space, that it will potentially open up some arguments in that respect. Mm. Uh, I think um, not only does tikanga provide a, a really clear example of interest continuing beyond death, particularly related to reputation and standing and prestige, um, but that's an idea that resonates more broadly than just, just um, I guess, to Māori and uh, in accordance with tikanga. I mean, it's, it's, I guess what, what we're trying to do is develop a law that's appropriate for Aotearoa New Zealand. And I think we do need to consider whether, whether that area of law should be developed in a pragmatic way, in a way that actually recognises that people's, people's, people's interests don't just die, die with mm. them necessarily. In your personal opinion, are there elements of tikanga that would be inappropriate in a formal legal setting? What, 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 um, I, I don't think so. I mean, the, the way that the law develops in Aotearoa is that it does develop increment, incrementally on a step-by-step -step basis. So yeah. I guess in terms of any precedent that this might set, um, it would need to go before the courts and be developed in that, I guess, non, non, in that step-by-step -step way. Um, and the particular tikanga would need to be you know, looked at and examined and applied as to how it might be relevant in a particular case or not. Um, but I guess my hope is that um, any decision that, that draws on tikanga will, will be done so in a way that adds to the richness of our laws in Aotearoa. Is there enough knowledge, is there enough matauranga when it comes to um, you, you know, lawyers and, and judges who have experience and, and, and a sufficient understanding of tikanga? 
I'd say that's increasing. There's a lot of work being done in this space in terms of judicial education, in terms of our law schools. All law schools now have a component of tikanga that's taught in, um, mm. taught in law school. Um, but as well, one of the things that we tried to do in this case was really set a, a particular process and, and try and undertake um, a particular way um, that would help in preserving the integrity of tikanga. So, for example, in this case, we had... Um, the Māori Law Society acting as interveners, which helped to, um, I think, provide that third-party third perspective, um, for third-party Māori perspective on the application of tikanga in this particular case. And we also, all, all mutually, all parties, including the Crown, um, we, we had a wānanga, or a, we brought together tikanga experts, about eight of them, to tell us how, how tikanga applied in this particular case. So I think there's many people out there who are holders of that knowledge that can be drawn upon um, to, help, to, help, to help develop the mm. law in a culturally safe and appropriate way. Natalie, are there different interpretations or understanding of tikanga between different iwi? Yeah, so the way that I like to think about it is that we have these big fundamental principles that I've talked about, such as mana, whakapapa, whanaungatanga. Um, they're common amongst all Māori, but how they might apply in a particular case uh, and, in, and in particular region, regions might, might vary slightly. So I think there's a difference between those big practices and their specific application uh, in a regional context. So yes, I think there is some scope, well, tikanga certainly varies mm. from place to place. You go to one marae here and you go to one marae there and, yeah. and it is slightly different, but those big ideas, the ones that we were drawing on in this case, are ideas that are common amongst all Māori. What about non-Māori? Should tikanga and the principles of tikanga be applied to, to non-Māori? Well, I think in many ways we, we already reflect a number of tikanga principles in our law. So in legislation, for example, there's reference to kaitiakitanga, there's references to whakapapa whanaungatanga in legislation already. Um, I come from Fakatane, so when we had the tragic drowning of um, a number of people as a result of whakari, a rahui, or a prohibition on using that area was applied, and everyone overwhelmingly you know, respected and abided by that. I guess the, the converse of it not being uh, the converse of it being relevant is of course it not being relevant and I think what we're trying to create here is a particularly unique uh, legal um, legal matrix and legal foundation and mm. law in Aotearoa that doesn't just reflect you know that train of thinking that came from England but actually also reflects the local circumstances of Aotearoa which includes tikanga as part of it. This is so interesting. We really appreciate your time. Tēnā koe. That is Natalie Coates. Up next, Judith Collins' husband drew criticism for sharing memes that disparaged the Prime Minister. So, should potential first partners keep a low profile? We take a quick look back at how the role of politicians' partners has changed and what that says about modern-day political campaigning. Tēnā koutou. The spotlight has been turned onto the role of politicians' partners after the husband of national leader Judith Collins criticised the Prime Minister on social media. Here, reporter Fina Owen considers the role of first partners in political campaigns and why it appears to be changing. Historically, the role of the spouse was to be quite quiet, to stand by their side. 
political marketing expert Professor Jennifer Lees Marshmont. And smile sweetly, listening to their speeches or helping to host foreign dignitaries. So they really try to play quite a small role, just a supportive role, and not necessarily being a person in their own right. Then there was Dennis, the first time within the Westminster systems we'd encountered a first man. And although he was a really capable businessman in his own right, he was often kept very quiet, you know, standing by his side. You know, I'm not sitting here as some little woman standing by my man like Tammy Wynette. She received a lot of criticism in the United States for bucking the trends. Because one of the, the issues are if the, the partner of a politician becomes the story, then that affects the, the politician's brand as well. New Zealand's first first man was simply known as Burton, the quiet giant who shadowed Jenny Shipley. <laughs> Helen Clark's husband, Dr Peter Davis, quietly continued his academic career but got a hard time from some factions. This is our first Christmas in the White House. Christmas has always been a really special time of year for our family. Jenny Morrison is becoming an intrinsic part of her husband's campaign to stay in power. So the reason that it's changed is because there's more emphasis on the political branding of political leaders. So increasingly the partners of politicians have been brought into the campaign and they've been, you know, marketed as part of the product, partly to try and show their partners as being relatable, as being human beings, as being somebody who we, we might feel we can trust to run the country because they're somebody who their partner trusts them at home. When Todd Muller became leader, albeit briefly, of the National Party, they straight away put pictures of his wife, she was down in Parliament with him, um, similar kind of style to Morrison, and I know that there has been some overlaps in the advisers and the social media people between the two parties, so maybe that's why. He's going to make a difference. My husband, Simon Bridges. So has Mrs Morrison's successful endorsement, emulated by Mrs Bridges and Mrs Muller, been adopted by Labour? Please welcome to the stage my not-quite-wife, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda. It just shows you the extent to which strategists are thinking, OK, we need to involve the partners of a politician and that raises all sorts of, of ethical and democratic issues both for how we are conducting politics in society but also of course the, the people themselves involved it's a huge burden on the families judith collins family has always laid low it's always been the judith show but her husband david wong tung is keen to support his wife last week posting memes about the prime minister We've been together for 41 years. I've never been able to get him to do anything I tell him to do. Whilst, you know, that's somewhat humorous and most people who are married will, will understand that, it also raises questions because, first of all, leaders are, to a certain degree, supposed to control the country, right? They're running the country. So if she wants to be Prime Minister, she needs to be seen as highly capable of managing a whole massive range of people and staff and government departments and so on. I think for politics to be the most effective, we actually need to keep people's personal lives out of it. But there's no doubting politicians know the power of a partner's support. Simon Bridges may not be party leader, but he's learnt the power of personalising politics. His wife launched a conference last month. His boys launched his electorate race. Welcome to the launch of Simon Bridges' election campaign. And you can't compete with that. What's your favourite colour? Blue. <laughs>
<laughs> Fina Owen with that report. Kuomotu, that is Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching. And Namahi kia koutou ia koutou pānui. Thanks for your contributions. Next week, the end-of-life choice referendum. If you haven't decided which way to vote, we're going to have a debate on the central issues. Thanks to the Q&A team. Marae is up next. Hey tērā wiki. We'll see you next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.